This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is July 28th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Sure, Brian. My name is Andrew Hershorn, and I was with Hofstra Radio uh, from 1982 through 1986. Okay. And what shows or programs did you work on at the radio station? Well, I did a variety of things from hosting a jazz music show and announcing news, but Primarily, I was the sports director for two years. We did the play-by-play broadcast, Home and Away, for Hofstra basketball and Hofstra football. And I also prepared some specials in the production studio to go along with those broadcasts. They would play pre-game and halftime, stuff like that. Okay. Did you say you were sports director for two years? Yeah, sports director for two years, yeah. Okay. Did you have any other positions or titles at the station? For a short time, one summer, I was the traffic director, and about halfway through, I realized that it wasn't where I'd be announcing the traffic and highway congestion. I'd be actually assembling the FCC logs for programming. But yeah, I did the the programming logs for about a month or so, and mercifully, they found somebody who was a little more organized. But yeah, I did that as well. That, that, is a, that is a job that a lot of us get trapped into at one point or another. Um, when you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames or on-air names? Well, my name is Andrew Hirschhorn, and I felt it was awkward. So when I did the jazz show, I decided to change it to Hershon. And then all my relatives who heard the jazz show, it was called The Land of Make-Believe. They teased me for about 30 years to the day they died. This is Andy Hershon. You know, even though my name is Hirschhorn, which is you know, pronunciation. But it basically, I use my name, Andy Hirschhorn, or Andrew Hirschhorn. That was it. Okay. It's, it's, I, I suppose in some way, that's, uh, that's family being supportive. If they're, if they're taking the time to make fun of you, I guess that means they, they like you. Well, at least they listen, right? At least they yeah. listen. There you go. Um, so, two-part question here. Uh, I'm always interested what brought people to the station in the first place. And then if you could describe it. For those of us who weren't there at the time, if you could paint a picture, what did it look like? Where was it? What did it smell like? Who was there? What do you remember about your first time getting down to the station? Okay, I was lucky in the sense that I was determined after high school to do something meaningful because I cruised through four years of high school with a minimal average and just got through. And I said, I'm never going to live my life as a spectator again. So I was hesitant to go to Hofstra. I was encouraged to attend by my father. So I said, I might as well get involved in the station and get a running start before everybody. So I show up and I I now start training as an FCC engineer. It was then known as WVHC and it was in WRHU, same frequency, same wattage, but it was in mono. It was run by a gentleman who had founded it named Jeff Krause. He's passed away. He's a living legend. And it was a dusty upstairs room in Memorial Hall. It was a large kind of um, like a newsroom, but a lot of desks. It was was dusty. It was an older office. And I think Jeff liked it that way because we were nowhere near the state-of-the-art fancy-looking TV studios that Hofstra Television had because at that point, the president seemed to be promoting more of the television than the radio program. So we kind of were a little niche community, so to speak. And and we had this, you'd walk up the, the back stairs of, uh, I believe it was Memorial Hall, 
Mm-hmm. And it was on the second floor. Jeff sat in the back at a desk buried behind books like he was Zeus himself at the very back of the room. And you always only went near his office or his desk space if you had a really urgent question. And you were very trepidatious. He had this rich voice and this thick beard. And he was a bit sarcastic. And he was like Zeus. It was like you were going up to Mount Olympus to ask a favor from Zeus. And Jeff hated in theory, the sports department. In fact, he made no bones about it. He says, I hate sports guys. There's a story behind that. It wasn't my era, but I inherited a legacy. So you want to hear about that? Of course, yes, please. Okay, so Jeff was very involved with, like, community affairs and broadcasting. His station, WVHC, had the last recorded interview with Albert Einstein who talked about his theories of God and the universe and relativity and the very last philosophical statements coming from Albert Einstein. So it was a momentous interview, and he's waiting for the right opportunity. This was years before I came along. And so now NPR, I believe, contacts Jeff and says, you have this interview, now we're in to pay some money, give a grant to the station. So it's money for the station, a grant, and, of course, a lot of notoriety. Jeff pulls out this big reel-to-reel. It was an air check, which was well, it was a big reel-to-reel vinyl tape, like two, three hours long, this interview. And he goes to play it to see what has to be done. And one of the sports guys had borrowed it to use as an air check during a play-by-play broadcast. No. So there was no Albert Einstein. He starts talking apparently about relativity and about God. And about five minutes through, you start hearing a Hofstra basketball no. So Jeff was infuriated. He says, I always hate sports guys. I think he said it tongue in cheek because he tolerated me. See, Jeff had his own inner circle and Jeff was Hofstra radio. It was almost like a cult of personality in the sense of Jeff Krause. And he had some other people around him. And and Hofstra radio was Jeff Krause for the longest time. And so Jeff had this attitude. And one of the dinners, you know, we decided to be real cute. So we made a dinner tape. I don't know if they still do that at, at Hofstra Radio. So we had my cohort who's passed away, Mark Heller. He actually graduated before me. He was my predecessor. He was a former sports director. So he starts in announcing a game like live from Hofstra Arena. It's Hofstra basketball. And so, I'm sorry. First, we start with Albert Einstein and somebody mimicking Albert Einstein's voice. You know, the theory of relativity and this heavy accent It might not even be politically correct. And then he trails off and then we splice in Mark saying live from Hofstra Football Stadium. It's Hofstra Football. And guess what? Albert Einstein? Well, you'll just have to deal with this in another dimension with more relativity or something like that. So everybody laughs at the dinner. Everybody cracks up because they know the story. But the only person not laughing was Jeff Krause. Mm. So, you know, we, we were we were the um, we were like the stepchildren of sorts. Not that he was ever rude or disrespectful. He taught us so much. And whenever I had an idea, he ran with it. He was willing and open for anything that would move us along and help our careers. He loved industry. But at the same time, he had a certain intolerance I think, for the sports department in general. And uh, that's fine by me. I mean, Jeff was always exceedingly fair, and, and I like him. But, you know, 
I admired him. I respected him. Um, I was always willing to volunteer and help. And I can only say great things. But he had his own circle of people that he, he I believe he trusted. He probably didn't trust sports guys because he figured we'd grab another air check and, and do the same thing like the old guys did, you know? Oh, my goodness. Um, wow, what a story. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to get, get uh, search out and see if, uh, if we can get some other takes on that, on that story because that's, that's phenomenal. And, and the story about the desk, that reminds me, I had a conversation with Margot Diekman, and she mm. described the desk and the bookcase and how everyone would sort of approach from a particular angle. And she wouldn't. And, and he you know, finally asked, like, well, why are you doing it that way? And she said, I, I don't know. That's what I'm doing. But it was sort of a fortress there to sort of filter out uh, maybe the questions or issues he didn't want to have to deal with. Yeah, I, I think that Jeff was dealing with a lot. You have to remember that, again, we were like the second – the second tier of, of communications. And the only, by the way, the only real funding that came directly from the president's office, besides the money he was able to raise, was from for sports, because Dr. Sheward, who was then the president, was a former football player. So he said all home and away games should be broadcast on Hofstra Radio, especially the away games. And that meant some beautiful trips we took. That was directly from the president's account and from the president's office. So we didn't have that access. And so mm. according, I mean, the rest of the station didn't have that access. So I think he was a little envious of sorts and, he, and kind of felt like miffed over it, I believe. Hmm. Um, at the time, was the on-air studio still in the little theater or had it moved to Memorial Hall by then? I'm trying to remember. It was down in the basement. Um, there was a makeshift tiny little studio, which was near the bathrooms on that, or maybe it was the first floor, but it was on a lower floor than the office. I remember going up and down the stairs, but when I first joined, especially over that summer, it was like a tiny little office because they were moving the station around and it was still WVHE. The board was probably the size of a laptop. I mean, it was insane. Then Jeff got the board from someone who worked at WPLJ, which was a huge rock radio station, we finally had a real board. But before then, it was something like what a DJ would use at a, at a local birthday party. So I came in, I got trained for my FCC license on that kind of board. And the first night I came in to intern and train, I picked the wrong night. I picked a night, a Friday night for a rock show, which Everybody listens to. It's got a huge following. This guy was kicking off his first show. His name was John Setter. And his engineer was his friend. And I believe the fellow passed away. I love this guy. We called Mark D'Agostino. We called him Vinny the Blade because he was so good at cutting up tape and editing music. And in those days, we didn't have electronic block, you know, electronic editing. We used editing blocks, grease pencils, tape and a razor. So if you're a good editor, you use the blade. So Vinny the Blade's engineering, a no-nonsense kind of guy. He looked about six foot four, about 280 pounds. Margot would remember Vinny. She might have mentioned him. And he was engineering, and I said, I'm kind of here to do a break. So John Setter, who's then doing Rave Up, he decides to go to a break. And there's some big people, you know, the people who've been there, the upperclassmen, all around, a guy named Rick Walzewski, who is a very dear friend and, and, and uh, of Marco Diekman. And then there's um, Kathy Pyatt, Snapper Pyatt, who was a very, very good announcer. So these all older, you know, upperclassmen. I walk in there. I'm still really a high school kid. 
So I start to do the break. I got through it. But Vinny the Blade wasn't too pleased with my progress. And he goes, you know what? You'll do one break. Now you can watch me the rest of the way. And he was the kind of guy you didn't argue with. But I love the atmosphere. I mean, it was real radio. And it was such a tiny little room with eight people crowded around master control. And yet the sound we produced was probably as good as a regular rock radio station. And that's why you fall in love with radio. You can be dressed in your jammies. You can have a five o'clock shadow. You can have a tiny little board as long as the engineering of it is actually good. And, and I know it sounded great, especially with an engineer like the late Vinnie the Blade. So that's when I really fell in love. I said, I want this. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. And after I walked in there, spent a couple of days or nights watching what went on, I said, I want to do what they do. But then what they do wasn't so easy. I'll tell you about my stage fright if you want to get to that. Uh, I, I do, but I want to jump back for a second. So, so this Friday night interaction, you weren't, you weren't yet a matriculated student at the university. This was the summer before. Is that right? Yeah, you could get a head start. I'm not sure how. It might have been because there was a program director named Snapper Kathy Pyatt. I believe she really helped me along. I was always like her little brother. And she was mm. so funny. And she used to actually call my house and talk to my mom. We used landlines in those days. And my mom used to say, you know, this girl is so funny. She was married to a nice fellow also who had gone to Hofstra. So the point is, I think she said, you can get involved right away over the summer. I said, great. You know, they gave me a manual. And so I started training like even before because I, I vowed I would never again be a spectator in life. And, you know, then there was a song that came out from the group Chicago like, I don't know, everybody needs a little time away. And I just was driving over the horizon that goes on the Long Island Expressway and entering the area where my mother's house was on Willis Avenue and Roslyn Heights. It's about 10 minutes from after. And I suddenly like with the sunset and coming from the station and in the afterglow of the excitement of being at the radio station, I said, I will never, ever, ever again just let life pass me by. I'm going to grab life carpe diem. And I believe the radio station for the next four years is my vehicle. That's a that's a great image. That's a that's a great story. Um, I, I just want to double back a little bit more. So, what was it that made you say I want to do radio? Was it was that your planned course of study, or was it just this is this is a neat thing that I heard about? And I'm going to try it out. Well, both. In other words, I was actually a, a history, philosophy, and English major. I still love philosophy. And history and English kind of go with it. I do like writing in books, but philosophy was very exciting to me. So I had a strong background in the liberal arts, but I had always loved radio. My mother, may she rest in peace, would never let us watch TV unless it was some big PBS special. So we were relegated to listening to radio. So I grew up listening to Bob and Ray, who did these afternoon comedy bits. And I also used to listen a lot to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. It was, I don't even know if it's still around. Uh, but they were dramas on radio, listening to the radio dramas and how they use sound effects. It fascinated me. And, and sports was amazing because sports, you know, there wasn't a lot of TV production or TV games to begin with. But now you you could get all the games on radio. So listening to the likes of the uh, of Marv Albert doing Knicks games and you'd see the way he described the action. And I fell in love with radio kind of at a very young age when most people are probably watching cartoons. And I said, I always want to do this. By the way, my mother discouraged me. She goes, you know, 
we have a lot of phlegm in our throats and post-nasal drips. And it's an inherited thing. I have it and you have it. So the people on the radio have clearer voices. You don't. So I don't think you're radio material. This is what she told me at about age seven. And it was a Yiddish term called lechitz. You got to make the chassan, lechitz. So I grew up with this complex. So years later, I mean, I'd be in the air for two, three hours doing a sporting event. And I'd come home. I'd say, well, Ma, you know, hope you listen. But you said we got lechitz in our throats. And yet, look at me. I'm doing games for two, three hours. And she'd say, yeah. But towards the end, you started to do a lot of humping and stuff. So I'm still right. Yeah. So that was the kind of thing. But I always wanted to do it. I, I dreamt about being a DJ. I used to play radio, uh, uh, play on our Victrola, it was called, the Victrola, these vinyl records, and then talk into a microphone. And my parents thought it was nonsense, and it probably was, but it was entertaining myself. And then it became a real deal. And I said, this is a real radio station. You can pick it up in Connecticut. You know, so Hempstead going all the way to Connecticut, Brooklyn, we'd get calls from all over. So it was amazing. You know, it just was so exciting. It was a real radio station. So how does this passion and this this love of radio? You mentioned stage fright. How these these are not compatible things. What what is this about? What is the stage fright about? I think I'm neurotic. Um, no, what happened was I'm, I'm in the studio. I'm doing fine, and I'm what they call a staff announcer. I don't know if Hofstra Radio still has them. And uh, I've picked out. They called it a short topic or something where you'd read a little piece on something, and somebody typed up. Uh, a piece on the samurai warriors of all things. Okay, so I grab my piece and uh, I read through it a couple of times. And okay, I think I'm ready. And I, you can hear through the monitors when you're in the announcing studio, mm-hmm. you can see through the glass and you figure you're always going to have your monitors. Nobody told me it's going to shut off. And nobody told me there's going to be this deafening silence. And nobody said there's going to be this red light that blares at you accusingly and says, on air so i'm listening to some whatever music is going on that's my first shift as a staff announcer i think laurie ross who was with the station or another fellow was engineering and uh steve i can't remember them so they, they they throw the mic on everything goes silent this red sign is staring at me and there's not one frog in my throat there's about 16 and every other word i'm gulping and I couldn't get past this, and, and I'm trying to, like, breathe past it. And then, of all things, I'm reading about these warriors, and I'm calling them the Samori warriors. And they're not. It's samurai, but there's no Google pronounce like we have now. And I really should have somehow asked around and made a phone call. Never occurred to me that the Samori warriors are really the samurai warriors. So it was the worst piece I've ever done in my life. But the point is, it stayed with me. Probably for weeks or months, I kept it to myself. It wasn't until I got on the air with Mark Heller, who was then the sports director. I was doing color commentary to start. And after, you know, the repetition of it, you know, time after time, minute after minute on the air, there's no breaks. There's no script. There's no music to go to. Well, you can, but it's just the air. And being on the air constantly, it it acclimates you. So you kind of condition yourself. And the other thing, too, by the way, is being around Mark. He has passed on, but he was so enthusiastic about being on the air. He had no stage fright. His eyes would get big. He got these kind of bug-eyed look on his face with these glasses he had on. 
and and he was so anxious to be on the air and, and his his um and do sports and his personality his enthusiasm was just completely contagious and i said well he's doing it i guess i can do it too and i got past it but it's funny because the years later when i tried to pick up the podcast and then move into video casting which is a whole different animal now, and I don't like it. I, I like audio a lot better, but people want to see stuff on YouTube. You can't just, well, I guess you could, but people want to see images. So I started to get that stage fright feeling. And I actually had to hearken back to my late friend who passed on recently, Mark Heller, and, and say, remember how we just loved it so much. Get in touch with that love. You won't be nervous. So that's it. Mm, that's beautiful. That's 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 really nice uh, that that you have that you. that deep memory uh, that you can still recall. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Uh, in terms of getting prepared to be on the air, were there classes to teach you how to be an engineer? Was there uh, announcing classes to teach you how to be a staff announcer, or was it just sort of you you learn by doing in osmosis? For the engineering, there was a, our chief engineer, or I believe he was called the executive engineer. No, Frank Grunstein or Grunfeld, who's a real professional uh, or was a real professional. He went on to work for the big stations and he was the chief engineer. Our executive engineer who staffed the thing was Michael Kluger, who just retired from like 30 years of work with, P, I believe, with NPR. So Mike Kluger trained me and I'm always grateful to him because he was patient. I was awful. I couldn't engineer anything. You know, one thing, though, once you learn how to engineer and juggle a couple of things at once, multitasking, we might take it for granted in radio and, and being combo cleared and announcing and setting up our carts and hitting different things. Most people can't do that. Most people are floored trying to multitask, even in today's computer world. And so what I found is that was a tremendous advantage just being able to multitask. Now, getting to the announcing, and here's, it's another funny story. There was a fellow named Barry Lane, again, an mm -hmm. upperclassman. And Barry was a real professional or headed towards his professional ranks. I mean, he had the voice, he had the know-how. I was 18 years old. And I, if you listen to my air checks with uh, Mark Heller, Mark had a deep voice, and he'd say something about, they called him then the Hofstra Dutchman, which I think they have a different name now, but they were then called the Flying Dutchman. So the Dutchmen are doing this, and then you'd hear my voice like I was in this falsetto voice. It was almost comedic with this heavy New York accent, like, well, Mark, Hofstra's really trying to press the thing. So it was awful. So Barry Lane takes me aside, and in those days, there was no real political correctness. He says, you can't do sports sounding like a seven-year-old girl with a nasal accent. You, you just can't. And you sound so much like you're from Long Island. It sounds like you invented the Long Island accent, which is kind of cruel, but it really spurred me. So what I started to do is I listened 24-7 to CBS News Radio, which is part of the CBS Radio Network. And in New York, it's called WCBS News Radio 88. And I would have it on my car. I'd have it on home because they had the neutral Midwestern accent that Jeff always spoke about. And he says, if you listen to that, and, and, and Snapper Pyatt said that, you know, by osmosis, you're going to lose that accent or at least be able to hide it a great deal. So I listened nonstop to WCBS, but I used to practice and drive my poor mom crazy 
as many hours as I could a day. Reading copy, I used to bring home AP copy. I had rip and read. It was a rip and read machine. It would print out this copy. I just take home old copy out of the trash thing. Practice a cold reading. Practice a second time through. Practice a third time through. Keep listening to myself and try to force my voice deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and lower because I couldn't stand that high-pitched voice because I figured, yeah, I cannot do sports or anything if I'm going to sound like a seven-year-old girl from Long Island. So I've buried a thing. And it took a good six months to a year to even hear what my voice should sound like in my own mind. Once I had that ideal, I could then produce more of an announcer's voice. And I think that was my first lesson really in the power of manifestation. When you can hear it, when you can feel it, your body, your circumstances will follow suit. And so I really took about six to nine months of practice to really hear what I needed to sound like in my own head. It's a weird kind of thing. And once I was there, I could, you know, get that kind of announcer's voice going on. This is Hofstra football. You know, I was a little overdone, but at least it was better than being a seven year old. So, but I practiced constantly. So there really weren't any real training courses for announcing. Um, It was more just, I went home and I drove everybody insane. And I used to went out, you know, practice football games. You know, cable was just getting a toehold. So instead of right. one college football game, you had 20. I used to practice one to another, to another, to another. So when, in, in two hours' time, get in five times the amount of plays to call. So I practiced a lot, constantly. Because to me, I didn't want to go on the air and learn on the air. You don't learn on the air. That's your showtime. You know, it's like a bodybuilder trains for months, right? And then he gets on the stage and shows his muscles. Well, you don't train on the stage. You're training in the gym. You're training with your diet. And along those lines, I did the same thing for radio. I ducked out again there. Um, do you remember a particular game or moment or uh, an event where, where you got through the game and went, yeah, that is that is what I want to sound like? Or, or was it just sort of a general feeling, like you said, after six months or so where you thought, now I'm comfortable, now I sound like the way... I would like to sound. Well, it's a funny thing. It was a particular night. I believe it was a Tuesday night. I was a sophomore. And Mark, who was then the sports director, as a senior, had taken the night off. He says, you can do the play-by-play. And uh, before that time, I was, I was, I was awing and fumfering. It's hard to do play-by-play because it's a, it's a flow and you have to be able to recognize the players, the opposing team. It's usually more numbers that you're working with. So it's, it's a whole, it's hard. It's really hard. And, and, and the flow wasn't even coming for the players that I knew because I knew Hofstra's players. I knew what they looked like. I didn't have to look at the uniform numbers, but it just wasn't flowing. And then it just all hit one night and it was beautiful in the sense that, oh my gosh, I'm doing this. And, and I'm, I'm flowing with it. Maybe I wasn't professional sounding, but I was flowing with it. And, it was, it was amazing. I can't tell you how excited I was because I never knew that I could do it or not. And, and I was holding myself to a standard of like the best in the business, you know, that I would listen to the best on network. And I said, do I sound anything like them? And if I ever want to do this for a living, I will have to sound like them, maybe right. better. So it just wasn't happening. Then one night I came together as a sophomore and uh, it was the most exciting thing and the most wonderful experience of my life. And it just suddenly started flowing. That's fantastic. See, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a vocabulary. See, play-by-play is a vocabulary. 
So I actually had to learn the language of doing sports play by play. So just like you learn vocabulary for Spanish, let's say I was taking Spanish, two years of it for a requirement. Um, you need to take notes. I'd listen to all the big announcers and I began to break down everything they did. So if a quarterback fired a pass, you kind of see a frozen rope going like a, a line drive to a receiver, a very hard, low trajectory toss. But now if he's lofting it or sailing a pass, now it's a lot different. So you have to first get the vocabulary. Then you have to understand how and why it's used and then practice over and over again using the words and then going back over your list and saying, okay, when I'm calling a game, am I using this? You know, a big man might lumber down the court or, or plow down the field. A short, fast guy might scamper or dart. So I also began to fall in love not only with radio and play-by-play, -play, but with how language works. And, and that was, you know, a whole journey unto itself. And I remember my Spanish teacher actually said to me, if you spent as much time learning our language in Espanol as you did with this radio, you could get straight A's. So I said, OK, I'll take you up on it. His name was B.B. Thompson. I think he still might be at Hofstra, Dr. Thompson. And his name was B.B. Thompson. I took two years of courses. Very nice fellow. And uh, yeah, I got like A minuses and A's in Spanish because I took him up on it. So it was that kind of thing. But you see, when you're, when, you're, when you're mobilized, when you're actualized, doing something that you love like sports, now it bleeds over to your academic career because you're feeling good about stuff. You're willing to get up in the morning and, and you want to put your whole house in order. So I want to get good grades and I want to get through the study. So, you know, when, when you have something to look forward to, it helps you a lot in life. And, and so that's what it was. And, and, you know, why Hofstra, even though it takes you away the radio did from my other studies and I'd go on the road for two weeks and things. I still got really good grades, thank God, because you're just actualized, you know, it's that kind of thing. Hmm. That's a very mature attitude for someone in their early days at college. Was it something that you picked up on, you, the vocabulary and the terminology uh, that you, in your listening, said, oh, okay, I have to master this? Or did someone say, you got to pay attention to these details? No, I picked it up. And I, I mean, again, I took a cue from Professor Thompson. And I remember I, something came up like he was really berating me. He's a not very kind man, but sometimes I think he was a little intolerant sometimes of my nonchalance. And he used to say, and I, I remember saying like, There's, I can say this word and that's good. Like I'll go with something or something. And I said, why do I have to learn other words that mean something? I can say it this way. Why do I need to get all fancy with all these other words? And he like literally jumped up and down on one foot. That was the kind of guy he was. And he says, because that's what language is about. It paints a picture. Language is life. And so it was that kind of attitude that I think it impressed upon me to really, you know, max out. He says, I grew up in Georgia. How many Spanish majors and people fluent in Spanish grow up in Georgia? And I remember that. And it made a lot of sense to me. And I'm sure there are. But I mean, at the time, you know, he, I thought he was born in like, you know, Bolivia or South America or something. He grew up in Georgia and he became a Spanish scholar. You know, and, and so I said, wow. He says, learn the language. Learn my language. Learn this language. And so I said, well, if he can do it, then I can do it not only for Spanish, but, you know, for for sports. You know, the whole idea is you're trying to paint a visual picture. When I was a junior or senior, I ran into this mature lawyer, very nice guy, big Hofstra alum. 
and he used to come to Hofstra football's training camp. And he used to say, you know, when you're calling the year ago, you know, during basketball, big basketball fan, he says, you know, I, I lie on the couch, I close my eyes and I just listen to the radio and I'm able to see the ball moving around the court based on what I hear. And I mean, when you hear that, there's nothing better in the world if you're a player. I mean, it's like if you said to your pastor, I'm saved because of you. You know, I mean, I was thrilled. I was just absolutely thrilled. I said, well, let me ask you something. Did I have any phlegm in my throat when you're he said, no phlegm? You're clear as a bell. Um, so we, we get the sense of all these folks who are helping you get comfortable on the air and teaching you, whether it's Mark or Barry. Uh, there's, there's all these people who are helping you get comfortable with the craft of being a sportscaster. Um, was there a moment where you felt very comfortable at the station? There was that very intimidating moment with, with, with Vinny on that Friday night. Do you feel socially you were comfortable pretty early on, or did that take some time as well? Um, I think I think we kind of found a niche with sports, and it was just two guys. It was basically me and Mark for the longest time, or Mark and myself. I probably just said a grammatical folk part. Um, But I also did the jazz show. And you start to move up through the ranks with the people who, you know, come in as freshmen and sophomores and the older people graduate. Now, Vinny was interesting. He had some kind of deal with Jeff Krause, the general manager. So even though he had no interest in sports whatsoever, I think Jeff sent him on road trips to make sure that we got on the air. Now, Vinny had no interest in announcing sports. He was a production guy. Um, he, you know, he, wore the, he looked like the Terminator with a beard. I mean, that was the kind of guy he was, about six foot, you know, big guy. So we used to travel on the road. And, and I think I think Finney liked me. And then one day, like, he was talking about, like, a final exam for psychology. I'm like, you take courses here and you take psychology? Like, I figured he must be in the, you know, ROT scene. He's in some commando unit that, you know, goes under doc ops and takes you know i mean the idea of him just being a student like me blew my mind but yeah so the upperclassmen began to graduate some of them were very nice like like snapper pyatt or kathy pipe we called her snapper that was her on-air name Gennaro tellerico a program director another guy he he taught me things like i like this girl he goes send her flowers i said she's not giving me any kind of attention you know i'm calling her i'm asking her out she's not giving me the time of day he says try sending some flowers I go, come on, that's corny, that's cliche. He goes, you'd be surprised. So he was kind of like an older fellow. So yeah, I began to get very comfortable uh, with the other people at the station as you move along and as you, you know, find your niche. And you basically have to find your niche like anything else. And, and I found it and, you know, yeah, it was really social. I mean, you leave your classes and, you know, my first year, maybe I went to the library to study. And then by the second year, in between classes, you went right to the radio station. And, and you didn't necessarily study there, but you worked on whatever radio stuff you had. It's so a very it was familiar a, pattern, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was your everything, you know. And, and later on, when I became a lawyer, again, my life revolved around the law practice and going to work. And I would even regroup and pay bills at the office, you know. So you, you developed those kinds of patterns, I think, early on. And yet, it became, became the focal point of, of my life. And even over the summer, I may have worked summer jobs, but... I go and stop in the station, take some shifts and, and do some stuff anyway there. You know, like they have slots to fill for classical music they did then and jazz music. And I, I wasn't a big musical kind of I thought I was a musical kind of guy. And 
it's a story behind that too, but I'll let you talk. I don't want to ramble on and on. But. No, this is this is literally your opportunity to ramble on. If you've got if you've got stories, I want to hear them. If you thought you were into music and then you discover the sports thing is is more your 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 avenue, then then talk about it. Well, here's how it happened. I was given a Sunday morning slot at eight in the morning, which meant getting up at, at about seven fifteen to. If you're going to roll out of bed and not take a shower and dodge a shower, if you're going to take a shower, you're going to be up about seven on a Sunday. And for a freshman, you're probably going out a lot. Right. So mm -hmm. these were tough. These were tough shifts to make 8 a.m. Sunday morning as an undergraduate freshman. So I get to the studio, one of my first shifts, and it's a show called Polka and Oberic Time. I don't know if they still have it. A guy named Hans Olsen and Sweet Olsen. They still have it. They do have it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, so so now I go down in infamy with them, and I didn't mean anything bad, but he had three hours of this tape, and all you'd have to do is basically get there by eight, sign the station on, and roll these tapes, and then have the next one set up for when the first one ended. I didn't realize it, but the tape was tails out, which meant it was reversed. Oh, no. And I'm rolling the tape, and... Uh, Every now and then I'm opening up, you know, the monitor because I have a splitting headache. And it doesn't even sound like any language I've ever heard in my life. Like, I said, wow, this is some advanced Swedish he's talking or something. Because I've never heard Swedish that sounded like this. This sounds like some alien language. And, and the music itself sounds like it's in some sort of like time warp. So the phones are lighting up. And people are screaming, your tape machine is broken, God damn it. And I'm like, no, it's working perfectly. The tape's rolling. Stop bothering me. I'm an engineer. And I'd hang up the phone. Okay. This must have been all of Hans or Sweet Olsen's fans calling it. And I'm so sorry. At about 9.30 in the morning, Jeff Krause stops by the studio. <laughs> and he's incredulous. He says, you mean to tell me you didn't know you were playing a tape that's tails out? I go, I just figured it was Swedish. So he calls me to his desk on a Tuesday. I figured I'm going to be fired or something, you know. I'm a volunteer. I'm not even paid, but I figure I'm going to be a, a fired volunteer. This is my career. And he had a voice like this, and he goes, Hershorn, what can I say? He says, you have to be a little more attentive to what's going on in the studio. The problem is you're tone deaf. And obviously, you'll never, ever be able to be a musical kind of DJ guy because you can't even tell that the music is playing backwards. Even if the speech sounded wrong, you have to hear that the music sounded all wrong, too. He said, you have to do something other than music. So that was the beginning of... Actually, I did a jazz show for a while, but... Um, the sports was, I really caught on with the sports with Mark. I just gave him a call one day. I said, hey, can I announce? He says, yeah. I say, you do baseball games? Because I figured baseball was slower, right? right? Basketball, football are fast. He goes, no, we don't do any baseball. It's basketball. But you can come and attend, the, you know, watch us and help us set up the equipment. Okay, fine. And I'm traveling with the basketball players, a lot of fun. You know, we traveled with the team on these Greyhounds, and we went over to Loyola, Maryland, and I thought this was great, you know, and uh, that was how it started. But yeah, it all happened because of I messed up poker and Oberic time because I played it tails out. So. That is a that is an epic fail, I think, as the kids would say today. But but you learned from it, 
and and life went on and that's good and you figured out that uh, that sports was the way to go and by the way an excellent jeff Krause impression uh, I, 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 I've heard all kinds of different versions. That was, that was a very good Jeff Krause impression. Well done. Well, thank you. You know, I mean, he had this real sarcastic wit hmm. and generally it was aimed at me. Um, but I remember he had some very good pointers too. And I was starting off my first broadcast as a junior, as the sports director for the football game. And I, Kind of just to, to could kind of to, to prod him a little bit in a good natured way, you know. And I said, uh, Jeff, you know, the opening night tonight, I know you love sports so much, right? And he glares at me, you know, from his desk, like, what do you want, you know? And I said, any words of wisdom before we start this season? And he goes, Hershorn, don't F up. And he didn't say F, he said another word. But see, Jeff had a great sense of humor. So he's talking about, the fact that Mark and I would be flying with the basketball team all across the country. And he says, I think he's talking to someone, maybe our parents or something. And he says, well, there's a $10,000 life insurance policy in case the plane crashes and burns. So you can do what you want with their remains. He says, but we all know undergraduates, if they crash and burn, they grow back. Yeah, that was his sense of at least, at least towards sports guys. So, you know, it was funny. It was, it was, it was, it was epic Jeff Krause. You know, you, you love the guy for his, I think the word is droll sense of humor. Yeah. Dry. Yeah. yeah. That sounds, that sounds right. That's, that's a great story. Um, obviously your time at WVHC meant a lot to you and, and, and you've really expressed your, your ideas on coming in, but I'd like to, to wrap up with this question and, and see if we can uh, address this head on. And, and without the benefit of hindsight, can you go back to who you were at, at 17, 18, that, that summer between high school and starting at Hofstra, what did you actually hope Hofstra radio would mean to you and what did it become? Great question. Great question. Well, once I started at the radio station, I ordered a special pair of like tinted glasses from like a Cohen's optical outlet. And I wanted to be a jazz guy. And I figured it must be great or, or, or a DJ in general. It must be great to do an on-air shift and then leave and, and live the rest of your life. So I had a vision of like being in San Diego, doing a jazz show, living near the water and, and, and having this great life. Um, well, that nice. didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a great dream. But I think I might have been bored because, you know, sports was a lot more exciting for me. And, you know, you're playing the music. They sound great. I mean, unless you're a Ryan Seacrest. When I got out of college, I started interviewing. There were like millions of guys with great voices, played records and wanted to make it like like the big time or a Casey Kasem. And they simply did. They were stuck in some very small station, probably making not a lot of money. So. I took the experiences. So when I, when I started, by the way, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. And I said, wow, I could, I could do a radio career. But it became apparent that it was so hard to get a job. It kind of ticked me off. And I said, well, here I am, a college graduate. I've worked very hard. My sound isn't great, but it's good enough. And my father said, go to law school because he was a lawyer. He says, you can always open up shop. You can buy a radio station. You can buy the theater. You can get the whole thing. You can sit on the board. You'll be in a totally different position. And so for 30 years, I practiced law. 
And impromptu speaking, most people panic. Most lawyers don't feel comfortable up in front of a jury or a judge and speaking publicly. I mean, for me, this was second nature. You know, they were, you know, they're intimidated by a courtroom of spectators of what, 100 people? And I knew that for some of our bigger playoff games, probably tens of thousands of alums listening. You know, or we'd go on the West Coast, Mark and I, and, you know, big tournament, probably had a couple thousand people listening. And so once you can live with that reality, well, you better not curse or, or burp on the air naturally, but once you live with that reality, what's a spectator gallery of 100 people? You know, and, and, and so, you know, it, it prepared me for public speaking and how to get organized and how to be a self-starter. And now when I would open my voice and talk in, in court, it probably helped me and my clients because I sounded interesting. I sounded good because, you know, I, I'd worked in radio. I developed my voice and I addiction, you know. So I, I think that was a, a big plus. But that's how it kind of paved the way for, for 30 years of practicing law, which I also loved. But that's a whole different story. But when I started Hofstra, I had no idea what I wanted to do. No idea. I didn't even know what I wanted to study. They said, here, here, take these freshman level placement courses. They still have an FLP, they call it freshman level placement. Okay, sure. What are we going to study? You're going to study Western civilization. Okay. I said, why study? It's not going anywhere. We're Western and it's civilization. Well, we studied it. And so um, that's how it started. I had no idea what I wanted to do, though. Well, Andrew, this was this was uh, quite an entertaining ride. I, I really loved hearing these stories. I've been grinning ear to ear the entire time. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your time. And I'm going to come up with more questions, and hopefully you have some more stories to share. Well, Brian, it's a funny thing. I, w I was saying to someone, you know, when I want to live in the past, because life gets challenging at times with COVID and getting older. You know, I'm now almost 60 years old and there's challenges. You get depressed. So you go to a therapist, you have to pay $300 an hour to get someone to listen to you about Hofstra radio days because nobody wants to hear it. You go up to a friend, you say, let me tell you about my Hofstra radio days. They're like, mm. So unless you find someone who's been in. So I, I would literally go to a psychologist sometimes when I got depressed and I'd say, you know, I love college radio so much more. Well, why don't you try to pursue a radio career instead of what you're doing? Now? But the point is 300 bucks an hour and you're doing it all gratis. God bless you. you know? Well, I'm going to have to reconsider things and start charging fees here. I'm, I'm, I'm missing out. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, but I remember saying to somebody, this guy's going to listen to me talk for an hour. And then, of course, I start talking about all these stories. Oh, my God. God, yeah, because we're on a treadmill together. We're exercising last night, and I'm talking about well. Once you get, once you open, I mean, I don't know if, if, if you know you're still going to Hofstra Radio. You're still involved with it, but you know you're going to find you're going to harken back to it over and over and over again. It might be the only thing that you truly remember and treasure from Hofstra. Maybe the education. I mean, I liked the classes; they were great. But nothing was like the radio station. And I mean, everybody says the same thing. There's a, a there's an alum class thing on, on a Facebook and I've, I've, I've gone off it because I got kind of depressed with um, with COVID and I didn't want to go on there and, you know, be all depressed. But the point is um, with the lockdown, the shutdowns. But everybody talks about the greatest years of their life were at Hofstra Radio and Jeff Krause. So, you know, there you go. Well, this, uh, like I said, this was this was a fun time, and uh, I will send you a bill. And uh, you know, if it's not too exorbitant, <laughs> we can try it again. 
God bless. Now, whatever you want, anytime you want to talk about Hofstra Radio, I'm more than happy. By the way, if you speak to Marco again, please say you know, hi, Gennaro, Kathy Pyatt, anybody. You know, Walter Ennis, he was one of our engineers. He, he and I speak periodically. Yeah, I talked to Walter a few weeks ago, but uh, there's still plenty of people I have not had a chance to talk to yet. So I'm going to go with that list and see who I can find. Yeah, yeah, Walter's still, I tried to live in a dorm with Walter. And I had a nasty habit of waking up with nightmares and screaming at the top of my lungs, an ear-splitting scream. I still don't know why. It stopped, thank God. But I would do this, and one of those fits overcame me as I'm in this dorm room. So 30 years later, Walter calls, and instead of saying, how are you doing? Remember the good old days with Jeff Krause? He goes, do you still scream like you're being murdered in the middle of the night? That's Walter. Uh, you know, what can I tell you? But he's very happily married. He met his wife, Barbara, right there at the radio station. So she worked there. He worked. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I think I'm scheduled to talk to Barbara pretty soon. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll share some of these details and see what, what her story is. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm just going to cut this off then and call it a day. And, and God bless you. Have a great day. Good luck with your project.